Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on July 15th of 2012 under the headline Prison Break Happened During Conjugal Visit at Cheap Motel. Here we go. It was a few minutes after midnight on May 17th, 1974, and the Oregon State Penitentiary employee sitting in his car outside the Salem Motel 6 was starting to get nervous. He was there to supervise a conjugal visit between a convicted cop killer named Carl Cletus Bowles and his fiancée, Joan Coberly, and the convict was supposed to have returned to the parking lot by midnight. The guard walked up to room 30 and knocked on the door. There was no response. He went down and used the lobby telephone to call the room. No answer. Finally, the manager let him inside and he found the room empty really empty. The bed hadn't been sat on. The toilet still had a strip of paper over it. Bowles and his fiancée were gone. Long gone. They had, it turned out, simply walked out the back door of the motel. It was a jailbreak, and it was quite possibly the most embarrassing jailbreak in U.S. history. Carl Cletus Bowles was a small, handsome man, charismatic and, before his prison days, something of a ladies' man. He'd gotten into trouble early, before he was a teenager even, and by his late teens, he was doing hard time for larceny. In the mid-1960s, on the run from the law after robbing a bank in Portland just a few days after his release from prison, Bowles gunned down Deputy Sheriff Carlton Smith of Springfield at close range and in cold blood during a traffic stop in Eugene. It was this murder that he was in prison for at the time of his escape. Despite the gravity of this crime and the life sentence it had drawn, prison superintendent Hoyt Cup knew Bowles would eventually be released, probably at his next parole board hearing in 1982. So he was thinking about ways to encourage Bowles to reform himself so that when he was released, he'd behave this time. To encourage this, Cup thought a social pass, that is, a conjugal visit, would give Bowles a, quote, ray of hope and encourage him to rehabilitate himself. Bowles had been at some pains to charm Cup, and it seemed that his campaign had worked. Cup had taken a personal interest in helping this seemingly compliant, positive prisoner to move beyond his sordid past. But now it seemed it had all been an elaborate con. Joan Coberly, it turned out, was actually Bowles' niece, not his girlfriend. She'd been making visits to the pen posing as his girlfriend, apparently for the express purpose of figuring out a way to bust him out. This came as a surprise, but it shouldn't have. A teletype letter had come to the state pen six months earlier, just a few weeks after Coberly's first visit, from a detective in Amarillo, Texas, warning that Coberly was planning to break Bowles out. Cup claimed he never saw the letter, and well, maybe he didn't, although that would suggest a level of inattention to his duties that was hardly less damning than the alternative. As state and federal law enforcement agencies swung into action, the eyes of everyone were on Hoyt Cup. What on earth had he been thinking, people wondered. 
Why was a man who was doing a life sentence for murdering a cop who wasn't even eligible for parole for another eight years getting escorted to a motel room for sex? Wasn't that a bit irresponsible, given what often happens nine months after such an encounter? Why didn't the prison authorities check to see if the Motel 6 had more than one exit? And most of all, why was that teletype letter ignored? Governor Tom McCall, who had appointed Cup and had great faith in him, docked his pay by a thousand bucks and suspended him for two weeks. Cup offered his resignation, and McCall refused to accept it, but told him that if anyone was hurt before Bowles was recaptured, that would probably change. That bluff would, unfortunately, be called. Twice. Meanwhile, Bowles and Coberly were down in the hills near Eugene, hiding out. First camping, later in a commune, and after that on the property of a well-intentioned acquaintance. But authorities had tracked them down and soon moved in. When FBI agents arrived, Bowles managed to get the drop on them. He shot at an FBI agent at point-blank range and missed, whether accidentally or on purpose, but causing the agent to drop his pistol and scramble for cover. Bowles then fled the scene with the agent's stolen gun. He then went to the nearby home of Earl and Vi Hunter, took the couple hostage, and left town with them in their car. The felon then picked up where he'd left off the last time he was on the lam, taking hostages and hijacking cars and just wandering around the West, apparently with no idea what to do. Eventually, he wound up in the Spokane area, where officers soon found themselves responding to complaints of a man hijacking cars and motorcycles at gunpoint. They found him and chased him into the Spokane River where, waist-deep in water, he tried to get off a shot at a cop who already had him in his sights. The cop shot him in the stomach. Surgeons worked for hours to save Bull's life and were successful. Authorities badly wanted to talk to him. All the hostages he'd taken were alive and accounted for except two, the hunters, the couple he'd kidnapped in Eugene. What had happened to them? Bull said he released them in Yakima. The cops knew, with the sense that people develop when they're lied to a lot, that he was lying. And this, of course, they found very alarming. Well, eventually their bodies were found about 20 miles south of Spokane in a rural area. It was now official. The penitentiary's carelessness had cost two innocent lives. In the months that followed, a number of voices called for Cup's head to roll. However, Governor McCall decided not to fire him. He served as superintendent there for another 10 years before being promoted to a central administrative position, and he retired in 1986. But Bowles' case had a significant impact on many Oregonians' views on crime and punishment issues, especially regarding the death penalty. If anyone deserved the death penalty, it was Carl Cletus Bowles, and people found it frustrating that the law wouldn't allow it to be applied. They also found it scary that a man like Bowles had been just a few years away from being paroled, and they felt that the state prison should be more focused on protecting innocent people outside its walls than rehabilitating those within. Even among folks who didn't agree with that assessment, there was a noticeable hardening of attitudes toward convicts just after this happened. Correlation doesn't imply causation, but the correlation is definitely there. In a 1964 referendum, Oregonians overwhelmingly voted to abolish the death penalty. In 1978, they overwhelmingly changed their minds. This dramatic change was probably at least partly because of this case. One thing, though, is for sure. Conjugal visits got a whole lot more difficult to arrange in the years that followed. As for Bowles, he died in prison in 2005. Key sources in this story have included works by Doug Kent Crispin... Anne Rule, 
and back issues of the Bend Bulletin and Eugene Register Guard from June and October of 1974. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.